Welcome to Three Feet High and Rising! Hey, what's up? This is Marquise Munson, and this week our WNXP record of the week is Three Feet High and Rising, the debut album from hip-hop trio De La Soul. I know the album was released back in 1989, but with their first six albums now available on streaming services for the first time and the recent death of one of the founding members, Trugoy the Dove, there's no time like the present to highlight one of the most influential hip-hop records of our time. I had the opportunity to talk to people about this record and how it impacted them, including author Dan Charnas. He's a historian of hip-hop, co-creator of the VH1 TV series The Breaks, and the author of The Big Payback about the history of hip-hop business, and his most recent work, Dilla Time, about the life and afterlife of one of the most prolific hip-hop producers, Jay Dilla. Dan spoke with me about the impact of De La Soul's music and how it impacted him personally. Three, that's a magic number. Three. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three. Somewhere in this hip-hop soul community was born three, they stub me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean? The De La Soul record was the first hip-hop record that was recommended to me by another white person, <laughs> right? And for me, what it was symbolic of at that moment was how De La was enlarging the cultural tent of hip hop so that a lot of other folks could see themselves in it. And I'm not just talking in a sort of a racial ethnic sense, but also in a class sense, meaning that when I went to college, this is, you know, 1988, 1989, just before Daylock came out, there was a real bifurcation, even among Black folks, Black students at the university. This is Boston. Most folks who thought of themselves as sophisticated listened to house music, listened to dance music, and they thought of hip hop as just this kid stuff. Run DMC being emblematic of that, right? Track suits and Adidas and all that. And there was this real upscale vibe to a lot of what was going on at the universities and in black fraternities then. And I saw it firsthand because I DJ'd a lot of those parties. And Daylock comes along and suddenly people who are into alternative rock see themselves in Daylock. Suddenly people who see themselves as bohemian see themselves in Daylock. Suddenly, people who see themselves as interested in fashion and language and a lot of other pursuits see themselves in De La. So that is the legacy of De La Soul. It's the enlarging of the cultural tent. And so for me, to get that recommendation from a friend of mine who was completely into like alternative college rock you know, the Cocteau Twins, things like that. Here's this De La Soul album. Like, wow, like this is a ve this is very different. Visually, it was different. Sonically, it was different. Lyrically, it was different. But it was still incredibly dope. One of my colleagues, Steve Harouche, he makes this good point where he's like telling this testimony of what De La Soul meant to him. 
And he was describing how like Run DMC and like LL Cool J Beastie Boys were like, if we're comparing this to high school, like the cool kids, the jocks, that's what the jocks were listening to. And then you had like Eric B and Rakim with these soulful beats and Rakim's lyrical exercise. You had Public Enemy, NWA with these powerful and politically charged music. But then De La Soul came through and they defined something that was different in hip hop at that time. And you basically described the difference that they brought to hip hop was everything that you just mentioned. And I also think, speaking of Public Enemy, Public Enemy had really advanced what we thought of as hip hop musicality, hip hop production. Um, it had gone, gotten much more complex in the hands of the bomb squad. But the ethos sort of remained the same. Hip hop was really about beats and noise, beats and texture. De La Soul started to turn the corner on that. And it's something that their brothers in the Tribe Called Quest would finally put a stake in, which is it's not just going to be about beats and noise and texture. It's going to be about beats and beauty, harmony, melody, mining records for their harmonic and melodic content as much as beats, right? And De La, you can start to see literally the flowering of all of that. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm currently reading your book, Dilla Time, about the life and afterlife of Jay Dilla. And one of the chapters in Sample Time, you dissect the evolution of sampling, which you go through this process. You mentioned the Bomb Squad. You mentioned Rick Rubin. You talk about how the sonic elements of DJ Jazzy Jeff and DJ Premier implementing jazz music and hip hop. And then you talk about Prince Paul who produces Three Feet High and Rising. And I don't think we talk about this enough, but how important was Prince Paul's production in building the sound De La Soul would come out with with Three Feet High and Rising? You know, when we talk about producers, hip hop producers especially, we talk a lot about technique. Like my discussion about Jay Dilla is all about his many, many techniques for doing things. When we talk about Premier, we talk about his technique. With Paul, it's not that he did not have technique, he had technique, but but his greatest technique was his openness and his sense of humor. When you meet Paul, when you're in his presence, you really understand you are in the grips of somebody who looks at the world with a, a kind of a humorous side eye, and, and but also is super open-hearted. <laughs> And I can't say that about a lot of people in any business. Prince Paul really did use his sense of humor and his openness to new things as the perfect foil and encouragement for De La Soul to do their work. Could not have happened with anyone else. And that is Paul's secret weapon. There are a lot of people out there that's never heard of Three Feet High and Rising in its entirety and all they hear is about how much of a classic this album is start to finish, how it's just a beautiful project. I have friends who are asking me, why are you so pumped up about this release of this album on streaming services? So for those people, how would you describe the impact on the record Three Feet High and Rising? Musically, it was the act of some pretty precocious adolescence. It begins with 
a long ass skit. Now, here's what we do. The following contestants. How are you doing, contestants? All right. So, fellas, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Contestant number one. How you doing, Al? Just came all the way down from Wichita just to be on this show. You know it's going to be swell, and I want to win all the money. I want to win all the money. See ya. All right. That Contestant you can't really understand half of the vocabulary or what they're saying because they're inventing it on the spot. And there's these private jokes, of course, that go throughout all these interstitial skits. They really invented that, right? That became a thing in hip hop, these interstitial skits. But the first music you hear of this album is schoolhouse rock. And that's the stuff that our generation grew up listening to. So right away, you understand that this is not uh, some journey into toughness or toxicity, as we as we say now, but it is actually a journey of great nostalgia and humor and irony. One of the things that I noticed beyond that schoolhouse rock sample was a few tracks later, I'm listening to excerpts from the very Scott Forsman French reader that I used in high school. Écoutez, à midi. Quelle heure est-il? Il est midi. C'est l'heure de déjeuner. Il est midi. Il est midi. Quelle heure est-il? Right. I, that was my French lab audio. That's crazy to me. So that was it, right? And uh, and all of, of course, the, the sampling of Steely Dan and of, you know, all of that stuff was indicative of something completely new, new material, new ways of putting things together, new ways of speaking. What was the track on Three Feet High and Rising that you heard it and then you were like, you know, this album is going to be something special? I think that first one, you know, uh, Three is the Magic Number. I mean, jeez, nobody had ever created anything like that before. It did not exist before. The banger, the banger. banger that I go to is Jennifer. That's the hardest song on the album to me. It, it's a crazy ass drum beat, again, that we've never heard in a hip hop song before. It's, I forget who they're they're sampling for it, but it, just a, almost a, um, a surf rock hip hop. It was crazy. Access to her code, love struck. Was my mold, took a look, dropped my textbook, Jennifer. Oh, breakfast, broke it fast. She was in my English class, asked for notes, rocked my boat, Jennifer. Oh, and Jennifer. it killed. And then, of course, there's an interstitial in the middle of that, you know, some, you know, piano solo in the middle of it, a chopsticks. It was great. I can't, it's hard to describe it in words to folks. You have to hear it. You wrote a book on the history of business and hip hop, The Big Payback. How come this process, getting De La Soul's music on streaming services, how come it took so long? The way that hip hop makes music via sonic collage has never been protected under law. We have ways of protecting our ability to do remakes of other people's songs. There's something called a compulsory license that basically says, if I write a song and perform it first, anybody can perform that song again and re-record that song again as long as they pay me. But there is no such compulsory license for a part of a song or a part of a recording. And what that's done essentially is made the way that we make music in hip hop vulnerable 
to somebody saying, no, I don't want you to sample my work. And that has been a, a real, I got to say, cultural crime. And the fact that this stuff is coming out on streaming services now is great, but that's also a crime because they had to redo a number of tracks in order to make it legally sound for them to release it on the streaming services. That is an abomination. There should be a compulsory license for sampling, for parts of songs and for parts of recordings. And it's just never happened. Hip hop is 50 years old. It's really time to do this because everybody makes music this way now. And what we lose is the sense of historicity about this music. Obviously, it goes without saying that nobody would dare make an album like Three Feet High and Rising in this day and age. And the reason it took so long to get this stuff out is who's going to pay for it? That was the main question. I suppose the record company, the Tommy Boy, was saying, well, we're not going to pay for this. And the artist was saying, well, we're not going to pay for it. <laughs> and it took a third party, I think, coming in to actually, you know, Make it worth it to get it all done. Am I just another lost in the pack? We horse shacks, bitch, you know, laugh it off. The years just blow by. My eyes stay fixed, but the picture's kinda out of focus. I cry a lot, but admit to it. Enjoying life. Going, you know, to this release of this record, it comes at a time where we're supposed to celebrate the legacy of De La Soul and us fans finally getting to show our friends this is the type of hip hop that. I love, but you know, then we got the news that True Goy the Dove passes away. And yeah. I'm not saying that it takes away from that moment, but I just wish that he was here for people to finally hear De La Soul and be able to say to him that their music meant so much to a lot of people. I mean, listen, it's a, it's a really, really bittersweet moment and a passage for our generation. A friend of mine said to me, it's, I'm really taking this hard because I'm realizing we're never going to hear a Tribe Called Quest perform again. And we're now we're never going to hear De La Soul perform again. Just like we'll never hear Run DMC perform again. It's really, really as meaningful to us, to our generation, as say the passing of a Janis Joplin or a Jimi Hendrix was to previous generations. De La Soul changed the way that we think about what hip hop composition is, changed what we think of as music, changed the form and scope of hip hop albums, completely enlarged the cultural tent of hip hop, made it possible for there to be different kinds of masculinity in hip hop as well. That's really important, right? because everything was pretty much a monoculture and frankly kind of went back a bit to the monoculture for a while, especially in the Keep It Real 90s. And that's what their song, I believe from their fourth album, Stakes Is High, the one that Jay Dilla produced, that's what that song was all about. It was about this sort of last cry against the, you know, tilting into the wind, I suppose, you know, as to this avalanche of materialism and violence and Americanism, essentially, in hip hop, how it had lost a lot of what made it special as it became mainstream. And so stakes as high as a real, you know, a real cry against that. A brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Outside of Three Feet High and Rising, if you're introducing 
a new De La Soul album to someone who is unfamiliar with their work, what album would you choose? I don't know. I think also De La Soul is Dead is a really great companion piece to Three Feet High and Rising because they create this entire aesthetic on their first album. And then on their second album, they renounce it. It was nuts. And I understand partially why, if you want to understand why, there's a song called Peace Porridge on that on that album that really explains what they were going through as a result of being the non-toxic dudes in that sea of toxicity. You know, everywhere they went, people were sort of testing them because they thought they were soft. And uh, it was still a, a fantastic album, a fantastic piece of work. But there was, I don't know, for me, I guess, a melancholy that settled over the group, kind of, um, I don't know, regret and resentment that also became a part of of who they were. They weren't bright and sunny <laughs> uh, from, from, from De La Soul is Dead on. And that's fine, you know, because they were still dope, still talented, still capable of making hit records, um, but they had a bone to pick. Dan, I appreciate your knowledge on hip hop. I appreciate everything you've done for hip hop. And I want to thank you so much for talking some De La Soul today. Thank you for having me. Greetings, girl, and welcome to my world of phrasing right up to bat. It's the daisy age, and you're about to walk top stage, so wipe your lottoes on the mat. Hip-hop love this is, and don't mind when I quiz your evolvements before the sun. But clear your court, cause this a one-man sport, and who's better for this than plug one? Plug don't one. have to worry about me squashing other deals, cause they've already been squished. Freeze a frame of our moves the same, wish we can right behind the bush you'll stay with me i know this but not because of all my earthly treasures or regardless to the fact that i'm past the noose but because I'm